followed you for quite a few years now, actually, since uh, an image that we'll refer back to in a little while, the big hair image, as I refer to it. But what I don't know about you at all is how you first discovered photography and what kind of started that journey for you. Well, in, it goes back a long way. It goes back to when I was about 15, 16. I was always into music. My parents gave me a Kodak Instamatic camera. I decided I was going to shoot album covers on that stupid little Instamatic thing. And uh, stupidly, the photos that came out of that thing that I had no control over whatsoever um, were actually, I even look back on today, I actually showed Beck, my assistant, again today, one of those pictures. She goes, I can't believe you took that on the camera that you had no settings on. And it started off then and it was just, I then used photography as my way of getting to the mosh pit when bands came out to Australia. So a 17-year-old, long-haired, skinny, geeky, gothic-looking git before goth was even – like I was a goth before goth was even uh, invented. And I'd turn up to, you know, Chuck Berry, Status Quo, Deep Purple, Queen, those concerts. And because I had a, a Minolta with a big Mets flash on, which I stole from my dad – um, I'd always get into the press pit and I'd always be able to shoot. And because I looked so different to all the other photographers, the bands tended to pose to me, so I got great photos. And it was not my skill. I was just extremely lucky that I looked different to the other photographers in the press pits. So I tended to get the bands posing to me better than the other bands, uh, to the other photographers. So it's a matter of circumstance more than about going in with a resume of qualifications. It was about how you created the opportunity for yourself, not the skills. There's no skill. Seriously, I had no education in photography. I Everything was trial and error. Uh, don't, I can't remember how many rolls of film were just black or white or shit out. <laughs> but that was, uh, I was a museo myself. Uh, music was my number one passion, and it was just my way of getting up close and personal to some of my idols as a musician. And it I sort of went, it's a, it's a long story. I'll try and really shorten it. I got my parents paid, paid a lot of money to put me into a, a private course. And within a month, they kicked me out and gave my parents their money back. And <laughs> I just couldn't take the way they taught photography. There was all these rules and boxes that they tried to put you in. I then f- convinced my parents I want to do music. They allowed me to do a uh, sound engineering course. Um, within a year, I did a three-year course in a year and started working for the actual um, studio and the education centre. The difference was is they there was no rules. It was here are the guidelines. See what see how much you can bend these guidelines. Whereas in photography schooling, is no, there's a box. You have to sit in this box. If you go outside of the box, you're like the devil. So photography was something that was like a second hobby. Music was my love. And I just kept it as a hobby right through, right into my 30s. I started a business. I took photos while I was doing my business. I used those photos to create ads. Magazines liked my photos. One magazine ended up employing me to shoot some stuff for their magazine. And next to me, I'm a commercial photographer. Do you remember your first model shoot? Uh, close to it, yeah. No, pretty. <laughs> 
we have a uh, we have our own site where we have um, tutorials, uh, educational stuff for people who uh, subscribe to our site. And I went back and went through all my early work, and it was horrendous. I can't even <laughs> believe I thought some of those pictures were good. They're that learning curve. It, it's I knew where I wanted to be. I just didn't have the skill set at that time to get there. And it was just a matter of uh, looking at the greats that I loved, like the Peter Lindberghs, the Helmut Newtons, the Patrick Demichelias, the Avedons, the Pens, all those people I just drooled over their work. I would take a photo and then compare my photo to them and then throw my photo in the rubbish bin. And I would do that day after day after day. Uh, and I was never happy until I could drop one of my photos next to them and think, I'm getting closer, but I'm still like 100 years off. And I think that was what my eye was trained by continually looking at the greats that I loved. So there's no schooling that helped me. It was just pretty much my eyes looking at the photos I wanted to take and was never happy with my own work till I started to create photos that could actually sit next, well, sort of sit next to I still look at Helmut Newton and especially Peter Lindbergh stuff and thinks, Jesus, they're still a thousand years ahead of me. Well, you mentioned your sort of education. Um, I remember buying your RGGEDU course going back uh, a few years and just being absolutely stunned, A, by how transparent you were, because most people aren't. Most people tend to create tutorials where they give you 60, 70% of what they do, but they hide the thing that separates them. Whereas yours was incredibly transparent, but also you were so honest with the simplicity of things. What you maybe don't know, and maybe you do, and I'm being um, completely stupid here, but I noticed that after the release of your RGG EDU course, there was an, an abundance of clones of, of uh, Peter Coulson appear in the UK where everything down to the ripped jeans, the button-up vest, the way that the background still had those bits of texture that hadn't been removed. All of a sudden, people had kind of, I think, mistaken one of the things that you said in that course, which was to, the best education you can have is to go into a studio with a light, turn it on and move the model around the light, move the light around the model and learn what you like and what works from there. Whereas some people just seem to take that as, here's how I do what I do, copy it exactly with absolutely no imagination, no creativity. I I guess really what I want to ask is why you're so um, open and um, uh, so transparent with your process, considering you've you've taken so much time to build up to where you are. Um, I I believe that people like Helmut Newton and Peter Lindbergh were also transparent. Nobody can. It's funny. My assistant has a folder that she collects people's photos that they've blatantly copied one of my photos, and she always kills herself laughing. And I'm always, uh, oh, that's so cute. That's really nice that I've influenced that person that much. I don't, every, every and, and look, photography to me is an art. And this is why I hate camera clubs. This is why I hate most of schooling and things like that is it's, the art of the eye of the person who's creating. There's no right or wrong. It's, I have, when I look at a picture and if I'm doing a photo shoot and I'm building up my lighting and I'm looking at my tethered picture, nobody else can copy my thought because I'll look at the picture and I'll have my own thought of how I would like that picture to move. And I don't, nobody can actually, I don't feel that as like some secret. I think everyone needs to find their own, their own thing that really pleases them when they look. And 
as much as I love Helmut Newton and Lindbergh and things like that, I think my work is a cross between my loves of even Tarantino, that some of my stuff has got that quirky sense of humour. He has everyone's brain, everybody's eyes are their life's experience and what they like. And I don't, I actually find it actually very pleasing when I see people trying to replicate my work, but I also get a a bit annoyed that you will never make a great photography. You really need to go out and start shooting what you love. Maybe try and copy one of my pictures. Once you've copied it perfectly, now try and change it to make it your picture. You mentioned Tarantino, and I think that's a pretty good segue to, um, I remember first discovering you through, uh, as I referenced, a big hair image, which I'll go into in a minute. But what I was quite stunned by when I found your website was the, I guess, the provocative nature of your personal work on your website. So you have images that have sort of religious themes, uh, themes around pregnancy, all sorts of you know things that would probably provoke the more conservative-minded people. How do you come about the ideas that have made it into your personal work and and are you trying to provoke or is it just an expression? It's something that really annoys me a lot that um, over the last five years I've really lost a little bit of my soul and it was due to a previous assistant I had that tended to drift me more to commercial money rather than my own passion for creating emotion. And with my new assistant, we're getting back there. I'm just nearly back into the headspace that I can create the images I want to create. A lot of my images I call mirrors. So what I mean by mirrors is my props, my uh, story, my obvious story and my not obvious story are all there to provoke people to think. And by me putting a picture of a pregnant woman in the burqa holding a machine gun wearing stripper heels doesn't make sense. But (laughs) I've put this up as a mirror to hear what your comment is. So if you say that this is racist or this is sexist or this is, you're telling me about yourself. You're not telling me about my photography because you don't know the story behind my photo. You can just see these subjects and props which have created this image and some of those props were only put in that image to actually provoke someone to have a thought. It's not actually the story I'm intending. But it is the story I'm intending to provoke you to tell me about you. So... With that picture I'm talking about, Kiki was a very close friend of mine who's a model, who's a very comfortable art nude model, um, and she loved my storyboard for it. And she, I want to do it. Her story behind the shoot was completely different to my story behind the shoot. Her story behind the shoot, she really didn't like the way that uh, women had to be basically covered completely, had this little slot that they could look at at the world, and that was their life. She felt it was really, really suppressing women. My story, and I don't know if, uh, is this is a podcast or is this a... It's a part, it'll just be audio. All right, so someone will have to jump onto my website and find a picture. My story is that a woman wearing a burqa, you have no idea of who she is. So you don't know if she's overweight or pregnant. 
you don't know if she's six foot tall or four foot tall wearing 12-inch heels. You don't know if she's holding a Chanel handbag or holding a machine gun. That is My story is that simple. But some of the stories people have told me from that image are so powerful, and that's what I love about doing my stuff is I create people to think, and I still put it back to a writer writes about a little house on the hill with a picket fence and an old dead tree. Everybody has a different picture in their head what that looks like. Well, my photo is the opposite. My photo is a photo and everybody will interpret it different based on their mind. And that's a game I love to play. It's an old, I don't know who the quote was by, but I do remember um, hearing a quote a few years back about the worst thing an artist can think is that they control the interpretation. So it sounds exactly Exactly. like that. 100% the amount of people, even myself, I've I've always thought a song was about something. And then I find out what the actual writer of the song was writing about and think, oh, that is so different to what I thought this song was about. I actually prefer my idea of the song, so go away. Yeah, I've had a few of those. So something that's really different about your work from where I think fashion photography seems to be going or has been going for a little while now, um, there's so much energy to your work. It feels like there's um, now in modern fashion photography, a bit of an absence of energy. Everything's becoming very sterile and clean and incredibly edited and polished and just taken to a point of almost being dehumanized. Whereas with your work, you have this sense of almost performance and movement and emotion. How are you getting that sense into a still image? Oh, I love you. <laughs> this is <laughs> no seriously. I I have all my inspiration shots, and I rarely find an inspiration shot in the last five ten years of fashion photography. It is so plastic. It's so contrived. It's so it's just hollow. There's nothing behind it, and it's it's that thing that I think. Uh, forget away, get away from camera clubs, get away from rule of thirds, get away from all that stuff. Create images that feel real. As soon as they feel computer generated, you switch off. If you you watch a movie you know, like Gone in sixty seconds, the original one, every car crash looks like a really car crash. And you watch Fast and Furious, all you see is the computer animation. It doesn't feel real. And I love going back to trying to make things feel real, trying to add a depth of story, not trying to over-process, trying to capture my mood within the camera. And, yeah, I'll do some work in Photoshop, but most of my work is more like what you're doing in a darkroom. I don't use frequency separations or any of that crap. I predominantly, my retouching is dodging and burning, just to highlight the areas I want to drift the eye to and enforce mainly, especially a lot of my latest work is enforce you to look at the eyes of the model. Amazing. Sorry. So my first experience with your work was a model friend of mine showing me uh, what I refer to as your big hair image, which is a nude model um, with like a giant wig on, incredibly beautifully lit, almost like a spotlight from above, black and white image. It just absolutely it floored me. I, I had never seen anything like it at that point. I was probably three years into photography, maybe a little bit more. And um, I immediately had to look at your website. I obsessed over it. I shared it over my Facebook, which made most of my relatives probably quite uncomfortable. <laughs> I absolutely love that image. I just, I want to know how that idea came about. And if the end product matched the idea, 
the end product was actually better than what I thought I could get. Um, I, I have, I use iPhoto or it's called Photo Now on Apple. And I collect images from all around the world as inspiration. And I don't collect them to copy. I just, and it might be just a picture of a girl holding a seagull will inspire me to think something. And if someone saw what inspired me to the picture and the actual final picture, so how did you tie those two together? And that big hair shoot was a couple of mm, 1980s fashion shoots that had reasonably big hair. And I thought, no, this needs to go heaps bigger. And I have many different hair and makeup teams I work with. And one particular team, I said, see this, times it by 100. This is what I want to create. And it took about six months to make it come together. And we got it together. And both the teams were just like, this was the hardest thing we've ever done, but this was the best image they've ever created. And it was just, I had a view in my hair and I have another one with flowers. I don't want to give up too much in so someone copies me. Um, it was just, I had a picture in my head and I, I had two models that were very comfortable to be um, uh, nude in a way of not showing anything but looking like they're nude. And a lot of my photos look nude. The models actually aren't nude. That's why I get the expressions on the face is because they're not worried about me seeing anything because I don't see anything. But those that to get that, it was, I, I think, a year before we shot it, I had the idea and it was six months talking to hair and makeup team and the models till we got it to come together. And the same hair and makeup team are hassling me. What's a new idea? Give me a new idea because they got so much work out of the, that series. I, I can't explain it. It's really hard to explain. I have stupid ideas. Some of them are long-term and I have storyboards and I have like 30 or 40 photos which will make up the storyboard for that one image. And then I have other images that we did recently with a girl from um, the Czech Republic was a split second spur of the moment, you need a shovel. And I ran in and gave her a shovel. <laughs> and if anybody wants to, I, do, I, have a, I have a blog, a blog, so if you want to look up, Peter Cole's uh, blog site, I, uh, you can look it up. But any of my web, web pages will link to my blog. You'll see a picture of um, uh, Domia, uh, Domia, Domian, I can't think of her name. I only shot her twice. She's amazing. She got stuck in Australia with this corona crap, but she finally ended up getting home. Um, we got, did this shoot and I ran out with a shovel and I, it's like back to my old work, but that was like a split second she needs a shovel. And this is an old concrete-covered shovel. But it just finished the, the pictures. And I can't I can't explain to people how to do this. It, I think it's the Tarantino in me that I, I see something and see a surreality of where I could take this, and that's where I take it. And is that as much about you having the idea as it is about you not filtering yourself or thinking something maybe shouldn't work so you won't try it? You're trying stuff out and that's why you get to these places. Yeah, I, ha I had a talk many years ago with a, a big group of creatives and it was about creative you know, writer's block. And if you try and force something, you'll never create anything. If you just let your mind go free, 
it's amazing how many different ideas just go bang, bang, bang. And I think that's how my mind works is I only, I don't try and force a creative. I just let some stupid thing come into my head and go, oh, a shovel, let's bring a shovel in. And I don't question why I wouldn't. I just, let's throw it in, see what it does. And I think that's, it's, I've been brought up in a rule of no, uh, sorry, a world of no rules. Music does not have rules, especially modern music. You can do whatever you freaking like. And I think photography is the same. As soon as you start trying to put yourself in a rule of thirds and all this other crap, you're really going to struggle to create creative images. So to switch gears a little bit, you're, you're an incredibly well-known photographer especially I'm assuming in Australia, you're a huge deal. In England, you're a huge deal. I've spoken to people on both coasts in America about you on my trips over there. Is there any sort of pressure that comes to you as a, as being sort of a photographer with notoriety or fame? Do you worry about what images you're putting out and how they're going to be received? I'm only, I'm only worried about my crap commercial work, which is not my work. I'm only get worried when I'm struggling to find models, uh, the type of models I want to work with. Um, I don't worry about my own, the stuff I love is the stuff I love. And my poor assistant, I would say she spends two hours a day trying to find me models to work with so I can actually really create. And it's really hard these days. There's so many Insta models, everybody's e-commerce, there's no realness. It's all plastic and fake. Um, but no, I, I don't have any pressure on myself at all. I, I shoot shoots and I would say once or twice a month, maybe once a month if, I, if I'm really lucky, I'll go, my God, that, that shoot I adore, I love this. If I can do that once a month, I'm happy. Sometimes I don't get to do that once a month. Well, you mentioned models there and something that, I think probably you've already kind of alluded to why, but you have uh, such a, an amazing collection of images of just unbelievably striking models. Um, and, and maybe it's also down to the way that you post-process, the way that you shoot and the way that you draw that energy out of them. But there's such a rawness to it. There's such a realness to it. You just mentioned about how hard it is to find models. What is a Peter Coulson model and what in your eyes makes a great model? A great model is someone who doesn't give a fuck. It seriously is. It's a model that's happy to open up their soul and let me see their soul, let me manipulate it, let me stick their fingers down their friggin' eyes and pull out of their brain the expression I want. The, the model is not the pritzy girl next door because I'll never get a picture out of her. That's not the Instagram or influenza model. It's not the <laughs> any of those. <laughs> It's a real person with a real soul, a real heart, real feelings that's happy to let me try and bring the realness out of them. I quite often say to a model, what I want out of you is I want to show the world what the, the, the most special expression you have got. So the closest person in your life maybe boyfriend, your mother, your grandmother, your dog, whatever it is, I want to show the world that expression. 
I don't want to show them some fake pose. I want to actually show them the look out of your eyes when you're feeling amazing or you're feeling just absolutely stunning or you're absolutely in love or this is so precious moment. And as much as people look at the whole picture of mine, if you carefully go back and look at my images, you'll see I'm an eye photographer. No matter what they're wearing, no matter what props are in there, my photography is about their eyes, about nothing more. Uh, one thing I would like to know, um, given sort of the previous point about your notoriety and your fame and your reputation as a photographer, do you ever find that you have a problem with getting over that hump where maybe a model's intimidated because it's such a, a, an interesting or great step for her career that she's a little bit nervous or a little bit intimidated by working with you, that it's hard to pull that realness out because they're sort of caught up within the moment that they're in. Yeah, I have massive problems with that. Um, one, if a model knows of my work too much, it's really, really hard for me to get a good picture out of her. Um, I really love traveling the world because I get to shoot with models who've never heard of me before, but might have seen what the odd picture. And I tend to get the best pictures out of them because we walk into a room equal. And I don't want a model scared. I don't, I just want to walk in that we're equal. We're going to create an awesome image today. I don't care who you are. I don't care who I am. Let's just create this beautiful image. And at the moment, I tend to, when I'm traveling a lot, especially in Europe, I stumble across models like the amazing Tess in Milan. There's a Audrey in, uh, Audrey, no, um, shit, I can't remember her name. Um, it's a girl in Paris. There's Juliet in Paris. These people never heard about me before, and we did these shoots, and I think if they knew about me, I would never have got those photos. It was that fact that we're working on this even playing field that allowed them to experiment and allowed me to experiment. Your work is predominantly black and white, very predominantly. The work that I come across is very predominantly black and white. Is there a particular p purpose behind that? Is that from the film days of just what you preferred in the film days? Or is that more to do with your influences from Peter Lindbergh? Where does that come from? Um, it's funny, lots and lots of people bring this up. Commercially, I would say 70% of my work commercially is color. Okay. Whereas I would say 95% of my private work is black and white. And I think it's a couple of things. So we just, we actually put a tutorial up today where I pointed out to a makeup artist and I taught her how to see with her eyes. And I said, just look out in that room. What do you see? And she mentioned some things and he said, yeah, I'm looking past this, but I can see this. But the reason she said she was looking past something was it already had caught her eye and it was because it was a color. And I said to her, right. So if you look at this room again, now I'm telling you and tell you what you can see. You can see the yellow and the orange extension cords. You can see the red firebox. You can see the blue box over there. You can see the green container over there. I said, look at this room again. And she looked at it and she said, you're right. Everything I can see has got a color in it. I said, but once we remove the color, now you can only see what's important in that room. And... A lot of, in my growing up years in photography, I was always, if it's in color, turn it to black and white. If the picture doesn't get better, it's a crap picture. Okay. So my viewfinders on my Sony are all set to black and white. I wish I could set my Hasselblads to black and white, but I can't. 
I, and if you look at a lot of the cinematographers or the TV people, a lot of their monitors are black and white because by turning off the sense of colour, you can see light and you can see contrast so much better. And to me, by taking away that colour sense, you increase the sense of the importance of the picture. And, yes, my favourite photographers like Peter Lindbergh, Helmut Newton and that predominantly shot black and white. And I think that's where I get it from. It Black and white means it's a photo. Colour means I see this every day. Every day I walk down the street, I see colour. But when I see black and white, it's not every day. It's now something special. Well, at the, at the risk of alienating myself here, because I'm going to say a word that's usually not particularly popular with other photographers, but I photograph weddings and I shoot weddings with my camera set to black and white purely because I find myself uh, distracted and usually fairly badly influenced by the colour of a room, shifting my perspective of how light or dark the room is. And when it's a warmer room, I tend to kind of think it's a lot lighter than it actually is. And, and when it's colder, I tend to think the other way. So I shoot black and white just to kind of fight my own stupidity. So I feel like by the fact that that you do something fairly similar and you mentioned the cinematographers are the same. I feel a little bit better about what I'm doing now. You've made me feel a lot better about that. Um, but I definitely agree on the sense of you see colour every day. So black and white makes it stand out. It actually grabs you. But I've never heard someone reference turning a colour photo black and white. And if it doesn't stand up as a photo, then it's no good. That's a really, really interesting point. Yeah, uh, you're, you've nailed it pretty much perfectly. How many weddings have you done where the, the bride has been? I'm going to paid back all my girlfriends and throw them in the most ugliest colors for bridesmaids I can find. <laughs> when you look at when you look at the the picture, it just looks like visual vomit. But as soon as you turn it black and white, it actually looks like an amazing picture. And yeah. I think that if we can pull it's that senses thing. If you if you lose your sense of sight, your hearing, your smell, your taste gets better. I think if you can remove the sense of colour, your sense of creating beautiful contrast and seeing light gets better. You referenced uh, Instagram models earlier, so I, I guess it's probably an interesting point to go down. Um, I also feel like it might pull out some really interesting sound bites but uh, Instagram do you think it's been an overall positive or negative for photography and I'm imagining probably a negative for modeling I call them influencers <laughs> serious now Instagram is just it so annoys me I I've put up a couple of posts on Facebook and that showing my disgust of the whole insta or influenzas and i the my favorite thing was i found a clip of uh kate moss sitting next to one of the kardashians i don't know which one it is on a f the the front uh, the front line of a catwalk a fashion catwalk and the paparazzi have come up to take their photos you see kate moss pull 30 poses in about 10 seconds Every photographer got an amazing image. Well, this Kardashian just went cross-eyed. Mm. Seriously, the, you actually watch her go cross-eyed. She did not change her face once except went cross-eyed. And it was like you can see what a real model is and you can see what a real model isn't. And unfortunately, too much of the influenza has destroyed the models who are absolutely so amazing with their craft of how they can use their, uh, what's the word? They, they have this like essence behind them and 
Um, when I'm training models, I quite often get them to watch some stuff of people like Miranda Kerr, um, Adriana Lima, Candice, and they watch them walk down the catwalk and they say, oh, my God, this girl, I just cannot stop looking at her eyes. This She's just grabbed me. But you look at the influencers, there's no eyes. They're just dead. It's a pretty dumb face and it's <laughs> there's nothing behind it. And I, I'm, I'm a little bit lucky, I think, because I am so bored with that pretty girl next door or that pretty girl look. To me, it doesn't. May, it might click you to say like, but it def- definitely doesn't hold you long enough to actually comment. And my aim is to get someone to look at a picture and they feel they have to hit like. And the longer they look at the picture, they go, oh, my God, I have to comment. Well, to me, I've won. It means I've got this essence of a picture out of somebody that's not just like a digitally created piece of crap. And in terms of the photographic world, by the way, I couldn't agree more, but in terms of the photographic world, do you think something like Instagram is driving down the value of a photographer? Because it's just an arms race of who can get the most stuff out. People talk more about like the algorithms of of how to get more attention on Instagram than they talk about the art of photography or how they're improving themselves as an artist or even what they're trying to say um, with their work. It's hard. Social media is a, a problem because the algorithm side is outside of the manipulation of the person who's posting the picture. Facebook and Instagram and all those companies have an algorithm based on if you sit and spend ages typing big, long replies to everybody's comment, your picture will get more views. Well, that doesn't mean the picture's better. I am very much at – I see Instagram and Facebook as things that you do when you're driving down a highway or a freeway, you look there and these billboards pass, you see for a second, you don't stop, you just pass them. The people who then go onto your websites and go onto your private pages are the people who are more important and they're the ones that, all right, they've dr- driven off the highway, done a UE, dro- driven back to that billboard and want to go deeper. They're the people I'm after. I'm not interested in the people who are just happy to see, oh, it's pretty, that's pretty, that's pretty. I'm I'm looking for that person that wants more than that plastic pretty shot. I'm looking for that person that wants to look into the eyes of a model and think, now what is she thinking? And an Instagram or a Facebook's never going to give me that, but the person that then goes to my private um, web page or goes to a site which is not controlled by their algorithms, they're the people I'm interested in. I don't want to get the terminology wrong on this, but brand ambassadorship is something that's uh, kind of a big deal these days. Everyone's uh, representing some company or another. Usually um, you see the ones where they are sort of long-standing companies that have, have got a huge foundation within the industry that they work within. And then more and more you're seeing, uh, as you put it, the influencers who have got some some t-shirt company or some third-party lens company or whatever, something where it's they're using someone's followers to kind of shill on products, I guess is probably the best way to put it. But brand ambassadorship is a big deal anyway these days um as someone i believe you're a brand ambassador for ilford zeiss and hasselblad which are all pretty huge foundations if i'm using the wrong terminology i apologize but they're all pretty huge foundations in the photographic world what is it like being a brand ambassador because it does feel like there are two sort of schools of thought one side is that 
Um, it's people selling products that they don't actually use. And then the other side is that you just get thrown thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds worth of uh, equipment and you get to do whatever you want with it. What's it like actually being a brand ambassador? Well, both of those statements are completely false. Um, Hasselblad will not take you on as a brand ambassador if you haven't been shooting Hasselblad, if you don't own every lens they have, if you don't own every camera they have. So Hasselblad approached me. I already owned like $100,000 worth of their gear when they approached me. And they gave me nothing because I already have it, all the stuff I needed. Ilford, again, as I've printed on Ilford paper, Ilford was bought out by a company in Australia called CR Kennedy, who I'm very close to. They're also the distributor of Hasselblad and Zeiss in Australia. But I was already using Ilford paper. I didn't change. I My printing was always done on Ilford paper. Zeiss, I owned three of the baddest lenses and I think two or three of the no, sorry, three of the Otis lenses, two or three of the Battis lenses, and I think I had three of the um, – oh, shit, I can't think. Uh, oh, slipping my tongue. There's another lens they did was a manual focus. So Milvus? No, it's the uh, – Loxias. Loxias. I owned all of that stuff before Zeiss even contacted me. When Zeiss in, I think I've had a partnership with Zeiss for maybe seven years. In that seven years, they have given me two lenses, right? And one of the lenses that any day they can send me an email and say, hey, we want that back because it's only a loner. <coughs> so true ambassadors are people that actually used a company's gear, a company's realize that this photographer is using our gear and he loves it and we like his what he's doing. He is our ambassador. Someone who is shooting Nikon, all of a sudden we're going to sign him up with Canon, that is not a true ambassador. So, yeah, that whole – and look, I, it's funny you talked about this. I actually had a meeting with Hasselblad today and it was along these lines. It's like I don't care if I'm ambassador or not. The, all the gear I have is the gear I own. There's a couple of cameras, yes, you've given me, but I've paid you back on an hourly rate, at less than hourly rate than my commercial work anyway. And then I've given you this massive free advertising on every picture I take. I always mark you as this is a camera. So I'm not using you at all. I'm very happy to shoot Hasselblad. I've loved Hasselblad. I bought all my gear before you even even offered me an ambassadorship. And if you dumped me tomorrow, I would still use your gear because it's what I use. And I think that is a true ambassador. There is a lot of people out there, and I know of some in Australia, that will change camera brands based on who's going to give them free cameras. I think that's just a crock. Yeah. No, I know a few. I want to move away from stuff because we've talked about stuff on Instagram. We've talked about stuff in terms of the objects that you're using to take pictures. Something that I've been a big uh, proponent of, and I've I've constantly told anyone that I've spoken to who's looking for advice 
to sort of better their work. It's it's so important to build your own personal style and it's so important to have some form of consistent um, personality to that style. The consistency is what really makes you stand out by the fact that people know what you do, they know what you produce and they and they know what they're going to get from you as much as um, you can vary that style. But as long as there's sort of a central pillar of personality to it, it's so important. The most common thing I hear back is a complaint that being like consistent is boring that you need to almost be doing something different every time you pick up a camera. Um, you referenced camera clubs, which is quite a common thing of just this week you're doing this type of photography, next week you're doing this type of photography, and you never really develop a style or anything because you're just always like, you're like a kid that's constantly getting distracted by shiny things. How important is the sort of consistency of your style to your success? So important. I think if everyone's look at, got to look to... Uh, photography or art as what it's been. If you look at a Rembrandt, it looks like a Rembrandt. Am I right? Mm-hmm. 100%. You listen to the best composers in the world, uh, Tchaikovsky, whatever, they sound like them. You listen to Led Zeppelin, they sound like Led Zeppelin. You listen to Navara, they sound like Navara. It's, you can't, you can't teach someone a style. It's within. People ask me how long you've been a photographer. I say, well, the second I was born, because my eyes, the influences in my life, the things that have happened that have um, made me go wow, the things that have really touched me in my life come out of my photos you can't teach that everybody has their own life everyone should have their own look and you look at the greatest photo- photographers in the world the look at the greatest musicians in the world look at the greatest poets of the world every single one of them has their own style because they're not trying to copy they're not listening to camera clubs there's no rule of thirds there's it's just this is what my eyes like or this is what my ears like so i'm going to do it right or wrong this is what i like so what do you do to pull yourself away from photography and freshen yourself up so that you can come back to it sort of enthusiastic what's your what's your own hobbies away from photography Right. This is this is really hard. Before, I'd never had a hobby away from photography. Photography was my hobby. But when I went through a little bad patch a couple of years ago, I needed a break because I was 24-7 doing photography and video and I was starting to drag me down. And my passion when I was younger was racing, car racing, and I used to do track days and things like that. And I built myself a $70,000 simulator, which takes up an entire bedroom. It has triple wow. screens. It has full motion. It's uh, the steering wheel will break your wrist if you don't let go when you hit a wall. It is so close to real life racing without dying. And that is my passion. Uh, and I'll go in there. I'll do a one hour race, which takes about an hour and a half because a bit of practice. Then you do your qualifying, you go into your race, which is about 45 minutes. I then come out of there absolutely soaking wet, covered in sweat, go have a shower. And that is my release from the world of photography. And I absolutely love it. Wow. That's not what I was expecting at all. (laughs) (laughs) 
What's the what's the photo community like in Australia? Um, you said that obviously you have trouble finding a, a very good supply of models. I think probably worldwide at this point, thanks to Instagram. But what's the photography community like in Australia? Because it's obviously a very very big country, but with a fairly small population in consideration. So is it? Are you quite well known over there? Is is it a country full of portrait and fashion photographers? It, look, I'm I am well known. It's, we have a thing called tall poppy in Australia, which is as soon as you get too big, everyone wants to cut you down. Um, but at the same time, there's there's lots of awesome people in Australia. Where our fashion industry has been destroyed by the Insta, the whole corporate e-commerce type crap fashion. Our models have been destroyed by that as well. It's all about, you know, doing 30 poses a second and someone puts you in motor drive, which is there's no emotion behind it. I absolutely love traveling when I get to places like Milan, Paris, even the UK. I find some of the greatest models in the world who aren't Insta. They're really proper models who it's all about emotion and feel. It's not about pose, move, pose, move. It's about feel something and let the photographer catch that feeling. Even America, my last trip to America, I found three amazing models in America that they were a bit Instagrammy, but after a couple of hours, we got them out of that and I got the most incredible photos out of these girls. And I, I just see I fashion is at the bottom, absolute bottom of the cycle it's ever been so all i can say is i'm hoping it's going to come back up to where it should be which is artistic editorial creative crazy everything away from our e-commerce crap and our insta crap <laughs> um you said you traveled the world obviously i know you've been to america we mentioned before this started that you had been to the uk i think what are your favorite places to visit uh, and take photos? Where have you had the most joy in traveling? Um, I love Milan. I love Paris. I love London. Um, th those three countries, I, I've always can find amazing models. America, um, New York and LA, amazing models. Australia, we still do have some good models. I get, I'm lucky that we get a lot of models that do travel to Australia from places like Czech Republic. But the incredible thing is in every country in the world I've traveled, whenever you can hook up with a Russian model, oh my God, I've shot <laughs> Russian models, shot Russian models in China, in Singapore, in Milan, in London, in America. And those Russian models, they just don't, how they just give it whatever you want they'll just give it to you they just they don't care what they look like they just let go and just let you capture and i yeah i'm a little bit little bit the russian models are a little bit special for me 
We've talked about Helmut Newton and uh, Peter Lindbergh quite a bit. I actually want to talk about Peter Lindbergh really quickly. Um, I really feel like outside of the photographic community, his death went really under the radar, maybe just in the UK and America, and maybe over where you are. But I really felt like he was so much more culturally important than he was shown to be in his passing. It wasn't even uh, mentioned as a, a, a passing news event in England. And I just thought it was absolutely crazy considering how much significance he's had to the last however many days decades of photographic culture was it a big deal over there and obviously i'm assuming it was obviously a huge deal for you it, it was a massive deal for me it was the most if you were to ask me most surreal day of my life was the day he died i was in an uber and a model in australia sent me a message saying i can't even remember what the message was but it was something like oh my god uh Peter L, oh my God. And I said to my PA next to me, I said, what's Raras just sent me this message? I don't understand it. And we're talking and we were running late to catch and one of my favorite places in the world is New York. So we were flying, we're in the Uber to go to LA to catch a plane from LA to New York. And all of a sudden, I met, I text back to this model, and then she sent back another message, and I said, Peter Lindbergh. And Beck, my assistant, quickly Googled Peter Lindbergh and said, oh, fuck, he just died. And I think I cried my way to New York. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I sat in silence for quite a bit. I, I just, I, one thing I've sort of really thought about the last two or three weeks is just how much it seemed to be culturally insignificant to people that it really should have been. He, he, he has such a huge footprint, the recent history of photography. We, we reference people going back 50 years. Why is it that he hasn't had the same cultural significance right now? Is it just because we're in a really stupid age where we're idolizing people, um, for the wrong things or we're idolizing people only in the short term? I can't get my head around it because I think it's one of the biggest cultural losses photography's ever seen. Yeah, I can't explain it. I I make sure you're at tears now. So I'm sorry. No, no, no. Don't do that. Um, it's he was, I would say, the biggest influence on my photography. Mm. And I know Helmut Newton. I loved to bits, and when he passed away, I was very sad. But Peter Lindbergh. It touched me. It's he shot some of my favorite models in the world and he brought this essence of these models that no other photographer could capture. He had this ability to bring their inner soul out that nobody else could get. And I'm with you. You hear so much more talk about people like Avedon and Penn. To me, Lindbergh was bigger than both of them. Well, I just hope that over time, uh, maybe it's appreciated a little bit more universally. And and I don't know, maybe when we get out of this idea of this constant 24-hour news cycle of just having to find the next thing to replace the last thing, and we can look at it with a little bit more of a broad sense, we'll understand. And when I say we, I mean everybody else um, understands it a little bit better and understands how important he was. Um, I'd love to see you photograph some more, 
I don't want this to come across as being a, a disparaging remark. So if my wording is bad, it's purely because of the subject that we're talking about. I apologize. But I would love to see you photograph some sort of Hollywood style movie celebrities to see the way that you would bring them out. Because I think Lindbergh was great at kind of creating a personality to what we've always known as a character when he photographed an actor or an actress. And I think you would do something similar. Are, they, are there any famous faces that you would love to get in front of your lens? My number one bucket list is Kate Moss. Yeah. It's absolutely my number one bucket list. And I don't care if I don't get to shoot it till she's 70. She is my number one. And yeah, look, there's a lot of people Peter Lindbergh shot that I would love to shoot. But I don't know. There's some something that, and I talk to models a fair bit, that when I get a model that nobody else in the world knows and I shoot them and I get all these amazing comments and amazing feedback as if she was an Angelina Jolie or something, but she's a nobody Mm. to me to make somebody like if I shot Angelina Jolie, everyone goes, Oh wow. You shot Angelina Jolie. They didn't say, Oh wow. Your picture is amazing. Mm. Yeah. But if I shoot someone you've never ever heard of before and you go, that picture is amazing. Sorry. That's better for me as a photographer than if I shot, someone everybody knows. Yeah, no, completely agree. So, yeah, look, I'd love to shoot Angelina Jolie, Kate Moss. <laughs> there's, there's, lots of, there's lots of amazing models that I would absolutely die to shoot because I know I wouldn't be scared of shooting them. I would be pushing, hey, that's how Peter Lindbergh shot you. I don't, I don't shoot you my way. I don't want his look. I don't mm. want Mario's look. I don't want any of those looks. I don't want you just going through the motions. I want to try and get my look into you. And I am lucky enough, I don't name drop. I never, ever name drop who I've shot with. But there's two celebs I've shot with that at the end of the shoot, I was on such a high because these people – let me shoot them the way I wanted to shoot them. Mm-hmm. And they treated me as if I was a Peter Lindbergh or someone of that state. They never, ever doubted anything I was trying to get them to do. And I created the images I want. And to me, that's like a personal satisfaction. I mean, I'm just going to throw it out there, but considering I'm I'm me and you're Peter Coulson, and I emailed you and you were gracious enough to come back and respond and come on the podcast. I feel like maybe this should be a good time for you to just email Kate Moss and just see what's going on. You know, when these borders open back up, do you fancy coming over, do a little bit of shooting? I'll I'll tell my PA that exact comment. I'll let her do that for (laughs) me. But (laughs) Kate Kate Moss is just one of those people. I have a storyboard and I think there's like a thousand Kate Moss pictures in it. But it's just, she is someone I call the essence of fashion. And um, one day it is my bucket list. And yeah, one day it'll happen. I hope it happens. If it doesn't, I still, I've shot, I have, I got to shoot next week and it's uh, a model that I actually call my Kate. So she's not Kate Moss, but um, when I'm shooting her, she feels like Kate Moss to me. So at least I've got that. 
I, I can't tell you how much this has meant to me to have this conversation. I have, like I say, you are absolute Mount Rushmore for me. And I think everything that you feel about someone like Peter Lindbergh, there are people out there like me who feel that way about you. So to have the opportunity to speak to you and get your insight and your honest opinions on things has just been uh, the best early 32nd birthday present I could have ever asked for. And it's been a life changing experience for me as a photographer. So I want to say thank you so much for that from, from the absolute bottom of my heart. I really do appreciate it. That's such a massive compliment. Thank you very much. But um, I still think that everybody has got, if you just chase your passion and you just be true to yourself and don't don't ask for pats on the back, don't ask for people to say, I love your work. You just take photos in the way you love and you don't show the world till you're happy with a picture. Um, you, you can all become a Peter Lindbergh. You can... It's that that thing about having your own eye and don't rest until that picture is, this is my picture and now I'm prepared to show the world. And the more you do that, the more, and don't listen to other photographers. The worst thing you can do is listen to another photographer. They're, they're not going to, they're never your clients. So why do you care what they think? Absolutely. Um, so I was debating whether or not to do this because I've done this with every single podcast so far and it's never felt more ironic or stupid than for me to do this with you. So I'm going to do it. Please don't take this as an insult to me. This is just really funny. I'm going to ask you where people can find your work, what your website is and your social media links, which is obviously so ironic given the difference between the two of us, but I'm going to ask. No, that's, that's fine. Look, pretty much if you go to Google and type my name, Peter Colson, you'll find most of them. But I have, I have a, my own website, which is peter-colson.com.au. And on that website, it's only a gallery. All it is is a gallery of my work, but there's links to my tutorial site, to my blogs, which is more the not G-rated stuff so they can't put on Instagram. Um, we have a lot on YouTube. Where if you type my name on YouTube, you'll find me. We run. We've got, I think, we've got twenty or thirty free tutorials sitting on YouTube showing how I work, what I do with models, and it's rough. We don't try and have perfect everything. We just turn some cameras on, put some mics on, and do shit. We don't try and be like Hollywood perfect with our grading and our sound as much as we'd love to. We don't have time. But the safest way is you just type Peter Colson in Google. You should be able to find heaps of shit on me. <laughs> uh, again, like I'm not going to go into it all over again, but thank you so much for doing this. It means the world. No, that's very appreciated. I really enjoy doing stuff like this. And I love podcasts. I actually, whenever I'm in the car, I listen to podcasts. podcast. <laughs>